Hi, I'm Chris Hill. Welcome to a bonus episode of Market Foolery. If this is the first time you're listening, thanks for checking us out. Usually on this show, it's me talking with one of the analysts from The Motley Fool about news from the world of business and investing in the stock market. And if you listen to some recent episodes, you'll get a sense of what we typically do on this show. If you are a longtime listener, this is something a little different. Definitely Motley. It is a conversation with comedian Greg Fitzsimmons. He was in Washington, D.C. last weekend doing some shows at a local club. I went to his hotel on Saturday afternoon to talk with him. He was very generous with his time and an absolute blast to talk with. If you're unfamiliar with Greg, he is absolutely one of the most popular comedians in America. He has played all over the country for the past two decades. He's got specials on Netflix and Comedy Central. He's won Daytime Emmy Awards as a writer on The Ellen DeGeneres Show. He's acted. He's done voiceover work. He's pretty much done it all. We talked about the business of comedy, how it has evolved over the years, the impact of Netflix on stand-up comedy, and a lot more. We're running an edited version of this interview on the Motley Fool Money radio show this week, but I wanted to share the full conversation. It turns out that both of us were attending colleges in the city of Boston at the same time in the 1980s, so that's where this conversation starts. So, here's me and Greg Fitzsimmons. Well, I wasn't really planning on going to college, to be honest. After high school, I took a year off with no plans to go to college, and uh, I saved up some money. I worked two jobs. I was a cook at TGI Fridays at night, and then I was a caddy during the day at a country club. I saved up four grand, and then I went to Europe by myself for like six months. And while I was there, my father applied to Boston University in my name, wrote the essay, everything. And I came home, and he goes, congratulations. I go, what? He goes, you got into Boston University. I go, I didn't apply to Boston University. He goes, congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. So they dropped me off in the fall. And And there's... You know, half a million students show up in the fall, and I just see like young kids with U-Hauls, and I'm like, "Yeah, this will work. This will work." And so I, I basically, I wanted to be a writer, and when I was traveling around Europe, I just filled up notebooks, and I was always writing. I wrote a novel while I was in Ireland. It's terrible, but I wrote a novel, and so I wanted to be a writer, and so I was an English major and uh, had a minor in history. And um, but I really wanted to be a stand-up comic. Ever since I was a little kid, I would um, walk past a microphone, and I had to pick it up and tell jokes. I watched every comedian on TV. I watched Carson every night from as a little kid. I watched Carson every night. I used to stay up late, and um, and I was fascinated by everything that had to do with comedy. So when I got to BU, there was. Uh, a comedy club called Stitches, which was literally, I could look out my dorm window and see the back alley that connected us to Stitches. And so I would go there and I would hang out and I'd watch the local cop, Don Gavin and Kevin Meany and Steve Sweeney, all these local legends that are still doing it to this day, that are among the best comedians I've ever seen in my life. They just never left Boston. And so they had an open mic night on Sundays and it was called Comedy Hell. And because it was so bad, like hardly anybody would show up. And the host, George McDonald, would get up and he'd go, Welcome to Comedy Hell, 
where the uh, where the pipe dreams of a bunch of comedy bozos can soar as high as the lights on Broadway or crash and burn in that fiery pit known only as comedy hell. So that was my first. And the first time I performed in Boston was uh, 1986, the night of the Super Bowl when the Bears beat the Patriots by like 56 to 7. Yeah, it was, it such was a, like a total such a blowout. And so the crowd was even worse than usual. But I had a bunch of friends that came, so I had some shills, and they were laughing, and I did it, and I was like, that was it. Uh, a switch just turned, and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And so I spent the rest of college going to comedy shows and performing. Also going to class, too? Or I'd just go to then? class during the day, and then at night I would be out in the clubs. What was the reaction from your parents? They loved it. They loved it. I mean, my dad was a, a radio announcer in New York, and so he'd spent his whole life, you know, working for himself in entertainment. And, you know, he was also a big influence because he would host a lot of charity events, and he would show up and he'd wear a tuxedo, and he would have stories that he would tell that were like stand-up comedy routines, and he would make fun of whoever was in charge, and he did essentially stand-up comedy at a time when there wasn't stand-up comedy on a regular basis. There was, you know, back then it was like people, I don't know, playing in Playboy clubs and whatever, but there weren't like stand-up rooms. And I think that was a big influence also on me doing it. Well, and to that point, I mean, that's, that's part of what made Boston pretty amazing for stand-up comedy in the 1980s is you had the combination of all of these clubs. I mean, you mentioned Stitchers. I, when I was at Boston College, I remember going to Cambridge, going to Catch a Rising, Catch a Rising Star. Star. Um, the closest club to BC was Played Against Sam's. Played Against Sam's. Um, you know, downtown you had Nick's Comedy Show. You had all these clubs. Comedy Connection. So you have all these clubs, and then you have, as you said, all this talent locally. It's not just that you have these comedians who essentially start in Boston and then sort of go national, you know, Jay Leno, Dennis Leary, Bill Burr, you. Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright. But you also have these guys like, you know, Tony V, Don Gavin, Steve Sweeney, Lenny Clark, who are just monster talents. Yeah. yeah. And they just decide, no, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm just right. going to stay here, which I think it had to have been a shock for other comedians who started in other parts of the country when they came to Boston. Well, when they came to Boston, I just had Steve Sweeney on my podcast last week, Fitz Dog Radio, and Steve is one, one of those legends. And we talked about how they would have a guy come to town who was a big name comic somewhere else. And, you know, maybe they were on Saturday Night Live or whatever, and they were they were decent comics but they weren't necessarily great and they'd come to boston and what they the format in boston was they would have a big local headliner host the show so he'd go up he'd do 20 minutes destroy bring up another act who would destroy then go up and do another 15 minutes then bring up the the headliner from outside of town who would die a horrible death because you can't you can't match a local comic who's that good destroying and with local references and making fun of the accent and all that stuff. And so it was like, 
it was like guys were afraid to come headline Boston. And they, and they actually didn't. They, they didn't bring in outside headliners very much, which is why it was an amazing place to start because it was like a, it was a community. It was a closed community. And so you had to develop your own voice. You, if you sounded like another comic who was already around, you wouldn't get work. So that's why you have so many different voices. Dave Cross coming out of there, Bill Burr, Patrice O'Neill, Mark Marin, Louis C.K., you know, all with completely different voices because they came out of this. And it wasn't just the clubs downtown. At the time, comedy was so hot that they, they could do comedy anywhere. And so Chinese restaurants typically have like a banquet room in the back that they barely used. And so they just converted it. They just got a microphone and a spotlight and they put a sign out front that said comedy on Tuesday nights and they would sell it out. You could be in Banger, Maine and there would be the Shang Lao Chinese restaurant and there would be a line of people waiting to get in and pay 20 bucks to go see a comedian. And they would pay us, you know, a couple hundred bucks for the headliner 50 for the middle act and 20 for the so the so the budget was less than 300 bucks and now they've got 200 people paying 20 they're they're taking in four grand at the door so these chinese restaurants are opening everywhere around new england pizza places and it didn't matter who the headliner was it just mattered that they were stand-up comedy that's how hot it was in the late 80s early 90s those were the clubs that i went to those were the first clubs that I went to when I went when I would go to comedy clubs. I would go to Boston clubs, and then when I moved to D.C. and I started going to like doing a little bit of travel around the country and going to clubs, I was struck by how different the dynamic was because yeah. I was used to the dynamic in a Boston club where the energy is high. There's almost a borderline level. Like it's it's a little bit like if you're at a sporting event and both teams are getting a little chippy. Oh, there's hostility. And you're and you're watching. Yeah. And you're thinking, I think a fight's about That's to right. break out. And <laughs> the, the first time I, I went to a comedy so club true. in D.C., I remember sitting there. I was with uh, my roommate at the time, and we were sitting up close, and the crowd was just you know sort of milling about. It was a little. It was almost passive, and I just thought, this is weird. Why is this club like? Because and you know, it was only later that I realized, oh no, that's a Boston thing. That's just how Boston. And is. it's still like that. Right. But it. But to your point about like, if you're a young comic starting out, that's probably about as good as it gets as a proving ground. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it was saloon comedy, and it really was very much. When you take the stage in Boston, they, there is not, there is not an acceptance that you are the funniest guy in the room. You have to, you have to prove it. And so they will heckle you if you're not doing well. And I remember one time, this, this is my favorite heckle. I'm on stage. I'd only been doing it for a couple of years and I'm up there and I mean, I'm getting nothing. And when they decide that you're not funny, they collectively just shut down. And so I do a joke there's no laughter. And then I overhear a woman in the front row say to her husband, whisper to her husband, the poor bastard. <laughs> and that was crueler than somebody yelling, you suck from the back row. <laughs> it's pity. It's just, you know what? Hurl all the insults you want. Please don't level me with your pity. Um, so you talked about how hot Boston was in the late 80s and 90s. And then, of course, I mean, it, it, you're right. It's not just 
Chinese restaurants all over New England realizing, oh, this is how we can make some extra money. It's other cities around the country see what's happening in Boston and start opening up. And, you know, at The Motley Fool, we focus on investing and business and that sort of thing. And from a business standpoint, it was a little bit like the dot com bubble yes. in 2000, 2001, where you had like, these businesses that didn't really have anything supporting them. And all of a sudden, you've got you know, Cleveland, Ohio, Dayton, all, just cities across the country opening up all these clubs, and there's not really the talent to support it. That's right. That's what happened, is they, they, too many clubs opened too fast, and what would happen is they wouldn't get good comedians, and so they started doing what they call papering the room, where they would give out free passes and so on a, on a Saturday night, what should be a paying crowd, where you've made an investment to go see a show, you're going to pay the 20 bucks, and it's going to mean something. And instead, you're just getting free passes. You get, you're getting telemarketed. People would get called at their house and go, hey, this is the Dayton Funny Bone. Do you want to come to a comedy show this week for free? And people go, okay. And then they kind of show up. All right, we could have seen a movie. Yeah, we, and so you get these lethargic crowds and mediocre talent. And so all of a sudden, these clubs just start hemorrhaging money and folding. And, and it really... It, and another thing that killed it was there was so much comedy on TV at the time. You had, you know, A&E alone must have had three stand-up comedy shows where it was a host who would bring up, you know, three comedians in a half hour each doing seven minutes, and that was a show. And so you had it on VH1 had a show, MTV had stand-up shows, Comedy Central had shows, HBO had shows. And so all of a sudden, people were going, why would I pay to go out and watch it when I can sit at home and watch the same comedians for free? And so that was another element that really hurt. That also has to make it harder for you because as someone whose job is coming up with material, you know, there's there's obviously a benefit both professionally and certainly economically to getting like a half hour special on Comedy Central or something like that. But once people have seen that, that's essentially material that you almost can't go back to when you're tra when you're touring around the country. When the original Borscht Belt comedians and vaudeville comedians came up, and there's a great book about it, about uh, it's called I believe it's called The Comedians, and it is by. I wish I could think of his name, but it, uh, it, it tracks the history of stand-up comedy, going back to burlesque and vaudeville. And those guys had one act, and they did comedy for 30 or 40 years, and they went from town to town to town, and there was never the same crowds, never the same people, there was no TV exposure. And so that act actually got really good because they were honing it for so many years. And then with the advent of TV, yeah, it's, you had to start... Uh, you know, churning out new jokes all the time. And now with the internet, that's become exponential because now you have to tweet out jokes all the time. You have to Instagram short videos of you doing jokes. People are recording you in clubs on their phone and uploading it to YouTube. And, and then you're doing one hour specials. And so it's like the, the public expects to be fed new material all the time. And when they're not, they lose interest. So, you know, it's become like I'll finish this interview and go back to my room and write jokes for the rest of the day. I'm taking you away from your job. Not at all. No, I'd much, <laughs> I'd much rather be doing this. Um, so 
Let's go back to the early 90s when the bubble starts to burst. What is that like for you and other comics who are coming up at that time? Because on the one hand, you've got this incredible training that you've undergone for years in Boston. You're essentially set up to, you know, what, if, if you can get laughs at Nick's or Stitches, by the way, how, how great is that for a name for a comedy club, Stitches? Oh, how about the fact that I was beat up on stage at <laughs> Stitches? <laughs> right. Literally. Yeah. yeah. I had a guy from the Israeli army, a cab driver, sitting in the front row heckling me. And I, I, and he came up on stage and he came up on stage and he came at me and I hit him in the head with the microphone and then he got me in a headlock and he spun me around and we knocked down all the tables and, and then I got off stage and then the owner, Harry Conforti says to me, all right, Fitzsimmons, you got five minutes left. And he sent me <laughs> back on stage again. Did he at least give you a bandaid or something? I, he, I wrenched my neck. I sent them the bills from the chiropractor. They never paid them. Thanks, Stitches. There's, there's still time. <laughs> but, you, you know, you've, you've done this training. You're, you're getting laughs in clubs like that where there's this often hostile relationship with the audience. It's got to be easier to go to Tampa or, you know, or, or most other cities. But once that comedy bubble bursts, what is that like for you? Well, it didn't affect me necessarily because I, I then transitioned. I used to... Um, after I'd been doing stand, I got out of college and then I started going down to New York a couple days a week and I would crash on couches, which is ironic because I just wrote on the show crashing right. for a couple of years. And I would, I had an apartment in Boston and I would work like Wednesday through Saturday night. And then I'd finish my show Saturday night and I'd drive to New York and I'd just hang around the clubs because it's very hard to get into the clubs in New York. So all you can do is show up, show your face you know, the comedians that w would come to Boston would introduce me to the club owners and eventually they'd look at you. And if you were lucky, you'd get passed to do late night spots, which meant going out at one in the morning in front of four people. And you do that for years. I'm sure they were all sober. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I then moved to New York. And so I was, you know, the New York clubs were still strong. So for me, it was just running around. And then I went to acting school for two years. So acting school was Monday through Wednesday. And then I would go do college shows, which were still going strong. So I would fly out and do colleges. I still did some clubs, but mostly I was just working Manhattan clubs and then colleges. So I kind of survived the bubble. And then clubs started to come back again after that. When do you start getting into writing on television shows? Because I was looking at your IMDb page. It's very impressive, the list of shows that you've written on. I, well... I was hired to do audience warm-up on Bill Maher's show on Politically Incorrect back when it was in New York. And so I was doing warm-up, and Bill liked my stand-up that I was doing during the warm-up, so he hired me as a writer. So that was my first writing job. And then, um, and then since then, uh, I, and I didn't do much writing after that, but I, I got a taste of it, and I was like, all right, this is really fun. I mean, being around the funniest, smartest writers around and sitting in a room with them and riffing was just a blast. And so then when I had my son, I wanted to get off the road more. I was on the road 40 weekends a year. And so I had a kid and I was like, all right, I got to rein it in a little bit. And so I talked to Louis CK, who was a writer on Cedric, the entertainer presents. And I said, Louis, I got to get off the road. I'm missing my son. 
So he got me a meeting the next week with Cedric and I pitched him some jokes and Cedric hired me. And ever since then, for like the last 18 years, I've pretty much split my time between writing and stand-up. Like I do, you know, um, a lot of times I'll consult on a show, so I'll just go in a few days a week and then I can still go out and do stand-up. Or if I staff on a show full-time, I'll do it for three, four, five months and then I'll spend the rest of the year going on the road doing stand-up. And the, the great thing about that is, I mean, if we're going to talk financials, is that TV money is really good. And stand-up is good, but not quite as good as TV money. And so um, it, it allows me to not do the road gigs I wouldn't want to do. Like when they offer me the Dayton funny bone, I can go pass. All due respect, Dayton, but no. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which, by the way, I don't think that club exists. I'm making it up. Um, and, then, and then if there's a writing job that comes up, you know, a bad sitcom, I can say, no, pass. I don't want to do that. So I can play one off the other and do, do the best of both worlds. And then also, the Writers Guild is an amazing union, which I get my health benefits from. So for my family, for the last 18 years, we've had health coverage through the Writers Guild. And, and also a pension where uh, I have one year left to qualify. You need to, you need to qualify for 17 years in the writer's guild, I have 16 right now of years that I've qualified. And then you get health coverage for the rest of your life. That's fantastic. Yeah. And a pension. From time to time, people in Silicon Valley, other places as well, but usually it's Silicon Valley, will get referred to as serial entrepreneurs. They're just like people who are driven. They start up a business and then they sell it or they move on. They, you know, that like that sort of their mode. They're almost like sharks. They got to keep moving forward. And when I was driving over here, I was thinking about sort of your world and how comedians are almost like they almost have to be serial entrepreneurs, only the businesses themselves. That it's just, you can't sit back and relax. You constantly have to have multiple irons in the fire, whether that's, yes, I'm gonna be on the road 40 weekends out of the year, or, all right, I'm gonna split my time, but I can't just cut back on the road. I've gotta have, you know, I gotta keep moving with writing gigs. Yeah, and you're also always developing. You have to pitch. I've sold, I've probably sold 20 shows you know, where you, they, you sell them an idea and then you develop the idea and on paper. And then if you're lucky, they order it and you shoot a pilot. And then if that goes well, hopefully they put something on the air. And so you're constantly coming up with ideas and then your agent sets up pitch meetings. And then you go into all the networks and you pitch the show and that's an iron in the fire. And then you've got, I wrote a book on the side. A lot of comics write books. You go do a, I do a, been doing a podcast for 11 years. Now I'm doing a second podcast. Um, yeah, it's constant merchandise. Comedians come up with t-shirts or, you know, you record a D you record a CD and you sell that after the show. Um, you know, the money comes from, you have to make sure the money's coming from a lot of different places. And I think I've read on The Motley Fool, the key to wealth is having multiple income streams. <laughs> it certainly doesn't hurt if you have multiple yeah. income yeah. streams. Even if they're small. Yeah. It just, it, it adds up. I have to believe that given what Netflix has done in terms of the investment that Netflix has made in comedy, that has to be helpful to the comics industry if only because they're investing money in comedy, so it's, it's one more opportunity to pitch someone. 
Yeah, it is. Um, too, I think to, to an excess, though, there's been too many specials on Netflix. And so it doesn't mean as much anymore. You know, they literally, I think they recorded 100 last year. Oh, yeah. I mean, back you go back 25 years, the, the idea that someone, insert name of any comic, that they're going to have an HBO special. Yeah. It's like, oh, my gosh, right. that's, you know. Yeah. Now, that really meant something when Kinnison did it or Bobcat Goldthwait or somebody. It really it made you a, a headliner that could command real money on the road. And with Netflix, there have been some people that really popped. I mean, you have guys like Tom Segura, Bill Burr, uh, Ali Wong, guys, people. And, uh, and these are people that are going out and they're playing, you know, five to 10,000 seat theaters because of a Netflix special. But there's also the 99 other people that maybe got a blip. Uh, maybe it helps, but you know, the algorithm of Netflix is that if some, if more people watch it, the more it gets put in front of you and the more it gets watched. So it becomes very viral. And, uh, so, you know, it's, it's a good thing. I'm, I did one and, uh, I noticed some difference, but not huge. But this, you just reminded me of something. I, I think on your podcast, uh, when Neil Brennan was on, I think the two of you were talking about this. Cause if you think back to, Definitely the 1970s, and probably for most of the 1980s, the the crown jewel for any comic is five minutes on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Meaningless if, now. If yeah, and if you like, but back then, if you got that, that that was almost all you needed. And now, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically it's it's nowhere near as impactful as sitting down with someone like you or Mark Marin or Joe Rogan. Without a doubt. I mean, you look at Rogan's numbers, he's getting millions of downloads per episode and it's an hour long interview with no commercials in the middle. And then you talk about doing five minutes on the tonight show where I bet they get a, a million viewers maybe. And you're the last five minutes of the show where most people have gone to sleep or turned it off. And if they do watch it, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to come out. Whereas the podcasts are generally done by stand-up comedians. So the audience are people that are inclined to go see comedy shows. So it's, it's your audience that you're trying to reach. In terms of the writing that you do, is one more enjoyable than the other? I mean, you talked about you're, you're going to go back to your room and do some writing. You know, is that more meaningful for you than going into a writer's room or is it something where they provide a nice balance to each other that because I, I can imagine a writer's room being a lot of fun I can also imagine a scenario where if you're writing on a show for a couple of years and you're seeing the same people in the room at some point you start to get a little sick of each other yeah, it's definitely a balance. There's there's upsides. Like sitting alone in a hotel room and trying to write can be really painful. You know, Adderall is my friend. <laughs> and uh, sitting in a room, at least there's momentum. You're sitting there and there's there's a show. And I've been a showrunner and I don't enjoy that. And I don't want to really showrun anymore. Because Why? It's just too many too many people to answer to. And it's too much pressure. When you staff on a show, generally when you leave work, you're done with work for the day. 
And I like the, I like riffing in the room. I like having a script I can go off and Because once, usually you do, maybe you do one or two scripts a season that's got your name on it. So the room will uh, pitch out the episode and you'll get the beats and you'll get some jokes and then, and then you go off and they give you three or four days or a week and then you go write the script. And that part's really fun. But the rest of the time you're in the room and you're just you know, part of a collective energy, which is great. But it also can be long days. On Crashing, when we were in New York filming, I was there. A lot of night scenes on that show. A lot of <laughs> night scenes, yeah. And so you would go till 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, in the village, drunks walking past. It's, you know, 98 degrees during the day, and you're filming on a highway in Long Island. And, and, and they were like 14-hour days, and it was like, it was pretty brutal. Um, but you're also... You feel like you're a part of a group, like, you know, the, you get to know the, the grips and the cameramen and the makeup people. And it's like it really becomes like you get close to people and you look forward to seeing them every day. And they treat if it's a, you know, HBO show, which I've written on a couple HBO shows, they're just very generous with food and coffee trucks and people walking around with muffins at 10 in the morning that they just baked. And, they, and then they give you they, they just let you eat whatever you want. You go to any restaurant for lunch. It's great. There's a lot of perks. That's nice. Um, but uh, but no, I, I think it's definitely a balance. You know, the upside with stand-up is like, I'll write a bunch of jokes, and then tonight I'll do two shows, and I will do those jokes, and I'll find out immediately if they're funny or painfully if they're not funny. But there's an immediate gratification, and it's a singular effort, so the rewards are definitely a lot more. That's one of the things I've enjoyed uh, hearing on your podcast is you and whoever your guest is at any given time talking about the process that different comedians go through and how some comedians are so methodical in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect from their act. And yeah. the, the one that I have in my mind is Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, you just think about the persona of Rodney Dangerfield. He's kind of this loose character. But from a work standpoint, he was someone who was just very methodical about his material. Yeah, Anthony Jeselnik has a new special out on Netflix that's just amazing. And I mean, that guy's process is he will write jokes and perform them just in L.A., just work in the clubs, which is no money. You literally can't make a living just working in L.A. But that's what he does. And, um, and he spends a year developing a new hour. And then he, for a year, he goes to co stand-up comedy clubs where it's more supportive. It's more a little looser. You can still be workshopping the material. And he's, still, he's actually getting paid. And he's getting paid. <laughs> and then the year after that, he does theaters where he's making huge money. And then at the end of that, he, may, he does a special. He'll do a Netflix special. And then that material's dead, and he starts all over again. And his jokes are so tight. There is not an extra word in any of his jokes. And his, he's so precise. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm in awe of him. He's really great. So you do stand-up, you podcast, you write, you've done acting, you've done voice work. What is the most satisfying to you personally and what is the most profitable for the bottom line of Greg Fitzsimmons Incorporated? Um, well, development deals can be very lucrative. You know, you get six figures on these development deals 
So you try to land one of those every year or two. And then the, it, the corporate dates, I just did a corporate date this past week, and that's a lot of money. But you got to be super clean. You got to go in. You know, I did it. I did it for uh, one of the biggest healthcare providers in the country. I won't say which one. But it's not enjoyable. You go up there and you got to be squeaky clean. No politics. No cursing. No sex. And you see, so you go up, and uh, this was at six o'clock outside in a tent, so it's light out. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's like senior executives, so. There, it's very stuffy, and then they serve dinner to everybody as I was getting on stage. <laughs> so, good luck with that. I've yet to hear a comedian talk about a corporate gig in any way other than what you just described. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, the money's good, but yeah, yeah. you got to be clean. Oftentimes, there's someone who pulls you aside and says, oh, Here's some background material on the yeah. president of the company. Can you work in some jokes right. about that? Well, I actually don't mind that because it's a great way to start when you can when you can talk directly to them. And that's kind of one of the ways I pitch myself for corporate dates is as a writer, I actually don't mind spending some time and doing the first 10 minutes about the company. Um, you know, like I did a bunch of insurance jokes at the beginning and they worked really well. Nice. But um, I guess other ways, you know, the podcast adds up. Podcasting is turning into real money. You know, it's like the last four years or so, it's been something like I could live off just the podcast if I wanted to. And then, um, but like a good network sitcom job, because I've worked my way up title-wise, is now probably the most lucrative of everything. Is it harder today for comedians from a business standpoint because there are all these different options because there are so many avenues it, it, it strikes me as it's got to be harder for at least for comedians starting out to get noticed um or I does the fact that they can post videos on youtube for free make it even easier there are a lot of headliners around the country that have social media following and they and the clubs will book them when they have a million followers because they know they can get a crowd and this is kind of what happened when the last comedy bubble burst is they were booking headliners that they thought could draw because there was a soap opera star named walt willie who was like exactly and they would put him into clubs and Crowds would leave and they would go, I'm never coming to the Dayton Funny Bone again because that was such a terrible experience. And clubs have to book great comedians. And there are enough great comedians right now. And, and they don't do that and it's going to ultimately burn them. Um, but, no, I think it's a meritocracy. I think if you're a really good comic and you're in a, and you're in a big market, whether it's New York or uh, L.A., Chicago, Boston, San Francisco, you will get seen. And you'll eventually get asked to go to the Montreal Comedy Festival where you'll get an agent and then the agent will push you out and you'll get seen. If you have, an, if you have a unique voice and you kill and you make crowds laugh, you will move ahead. You'll get a writing job or you'll you know, get on a sitcom or you'll get your, your shot. At, it may take years, but 
takes took me seven years until I got any notoriety before I got really seen. And the best thing that a comedian can do is, I believe, stay in a secondary market and get really good. You know, go to a place like Austin, Texas and, you know, uh, Minneapolis, where you can actually work three, four, five nights a week and not be seen by the industry and get so good that when you come to New York or L.A., you're blowing everybody else off the stage and all of a sudden you make some noise and then you get... You get a development deal, you get an agent or whatever, and then things will happen from there. There's something I've heard you and other comedians talk about that I, I would like to try and understand better. Uh, because you just laid out a great business case for comedians and sort of like, hey, from a business standpoint, here's how you can succeed. And yes, it involves years of work. But there's something that you've done, I've heard Patton Oswalt talk about this, that goes completely against the business rationale of what makes a successful comic, and that is walking the room. What what goes into the decision when you're on stage to walk the room? Because I... I <laughs> I've, because it's one of those things that I had never, I, I think the first person I ever heard talk about it was, was Patton Oswalt. Yeah. He was doing a club in Pittsburgh and he just decided, the, you know, the crowd started to turn on him and he just decided, okay, I'm going to make these people leave. Mm -hmm. And it, and it was, it, walking the room strikes me as one of those things that almost instantly earns you the respect of other comics who are in the back of the room. Like, you know, we use that phrase yeah. around the office from time to time, just like, oh, I'm playing in the back of the room. And yeah. finally, someone was like, well, where does that come from? I said, that actually comes from comedy clubs where the other comics are literally sitting at the back of the room. And sometimes the comic on stage will do some material and it's not for the audience. It's just for the comics in the back of the room. Yeah, I think there's a, and that, that Patton Oswalt story, I believe he had to hide in the manager's office after the show because <laughs> they were coming after him. Um, I think that comedy to me is about defiance. It's anti-authoritarian. It's very, um, and I think this is where Boston helped me develop a voice like that, is it's saying I'm in charge. You know, you may be collectively providing the laughter, but... I don't care about that. I care about taking my vision and what I think is funny and trying to connect it to you. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I don't live or die by you. And when you get some, when you get a crowd, and it, it, it happened to me, the only night I really did it was in Minneapolis. And uh, there, was a, there was a club there and I was doing great. I did like, I did like my, I did an hour. And then this woman heckled me and I slammed her, and I did it really hard, and everybody started moaning at what I did. And I go, oh, you're on her side? She's disrupting my... I just entertained you for an hour, and you're on her side? After all this? After all this? And so I said, all right, fine. I'm going to walk the room. And I just started doing jokes about... 9-11 and AIDS and crib death and every horrible thing, the Holocaust. And I just, they just started getting up and leaving. And I'd be like, good night, take care. And I just kept going. And after like 15 minutes of that, probably half the room left. And then the other half were psychos that were enjoying it. And I go, all right, I'm going to give you guys another 10 minutes because you earned it. You stayed. And then I, I never got booked at that club again. 
Well, that's the thing. That's like, again, from a business standpoint, like I totally get why a comedian of a certain stature would make that decision. But, and I think you made this point to, to someone on your show recently where it's, it's basically, yeah, you can't, you can't be the comic who does that all the time. You can, you, like, you can right. do that move a couple of times, right. but then you're going to be known as... Bill Hicks used to walk the room a lot. And uh, th- that was part of his persona, though. And I think, um, I just think that there's something about most comedians, and some comics will never walk a single person in their life, and that's fine. That's, their energy is different. There's guys that are great at corporate dates, thrive at them. But kind of the world I come from is more of like, um, you're not going to tell me what to do. It's, I don't know if it comes from childhood or unprocessed rage, but there's enough clubs out there where I cannot have to work certain ones and I can make a good living at it. There's always options. And I mean, you talked about being a serial entrepreneur. There's always another option of something you can do as a comic. You can improvise and, you know, just, and I don't know, I don't know if you do it to impress the other comedians as much as I think you're reaffirming to yourself that you're doing it your way. No, it, it, and I didn't mean to imply that you were doing it to impress comedians at the back of the room, but it, it does seem like when those stories get around, other comics are interested in hearing yeah, probably. your story about that. And from an artistic standpoint, it, it, you know, to take it away from walking in the room, this goes back to something that I, I, I read in an interview you gave where you were asked, the difference between a good comedian and a bad comedian. And you said, a good comedian works from the inside out. A, a bad comedian basically takes the temperature and says, well, what, what do you want to hear? I'll say whatever to make you yeah. laugh. And a good comedian says, no, this is, this, is what, this is my viewpoint. This is what I think. And hopefully you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, and I, now what you're seeing more is um, because of the Internet, you can, you can draw your audience. And there's a really good article about um, business in, in being an entertainer, which is 1,000 true fans, I think is the name of the article. And if you can get 1,000 people to follow you on Twitter and Facebook, and when you put out a book, they're going to buy it. When you do a show in their town, they're going to come see it. If you sell a T-shirt online, they're going to buy it. And if you can get those 1,000 people to really commit, you can make a living. And so now you can attract your audience through social media and through TV shows, but there's enough where it's, it can start with, you know, doing small clubs on the road to doing small theaters. And that you got, I mean, I could name 50 people that can go out on the road and play rock clubs or alternative venues. And the only advertisement they do is their podcast or their, their social media account. And those people, and they've fed those people. They've given them a couple tweets a day, and they've put out new material. And so you're rewarded by being able to fill up a room in, in markets all around the country and be able to peddle your wares. I should let you get back to your own. If you want to hear more from Greg, check out his Netflix special, and definitely check out his weekly podcast, Fitz Dog Radio. It is one of the shows that I listen to, and if you like comedy, I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.